Hey gamers, this is Joe from What I'm Playing Now, and I have episode 141 of the podcast that was originally recorded on December 10th of 2016. Some of the games I played for the week, we got a little Pathfinder Adventure card game. Besides that, I also tried to start learning a little the Arkham Horror Living Card game, which I think is going to be another game that I will be revisiting quite a bit. Got in a little bit more of the Great Western Trail. I visited the villages of Valeria, as well as took a deep sea adventure. I also talked about a few of the games that I want to play. Enjoy the episode. Hey gamers, welcome to the games. This is Joe Luzzi from What I'm Playing Now, and welcome to another episode of the What I'm Playing Now podcast. Thanks for joining me. And as always, you can send me some emails. Let me know what you're playing now. You can send those emails to what I'm playing now at gmail.com. You can also join us in some conversations over on Board Game Geek. We have a guild there. We are guild number 2440. On Twitter, follow me at what I'm playing now. Don't forget to drop the G like I always say. On Facebook, our Facebook page is what I'm playing now. Just do a search for that. Our Google Plus page is plus.google.com slash the plus sign. What I'm Playing Now podcast, and then as always, our Twitch channel is twitch.tv slash what I'm playing now. All right, let's jump into the what I'm playing now part of the show. Last week, I had gone down to my local game store for my normal Pathfinder Adventure card game group. We did have a few people who were not able to attend the last time we had played, so we were playing a little catch up here. So we had a couple of tables going, but we had we were playing through scenarios we have already done as well as some older ones that have been played a long time ago. The table that I was playing at, we were trying to get through the last three scenarios in the fourth scenario set, or the last three adventures in that fourth scenario set. And we did very well and perfectly fine with the first two. But when we got to 4E, we just ran into a whole heck of a load of problems. We basically just ran out of time. We could not get the decks completed and just closed out like we wanted to. It was just something that occasionally happened. So we were actually sitting around talking to see whether we were going to attempt that one again. I'm not too sure if we are or not. We may just move on to the actual fifth adventure set, the fifth scenario, and start that up the next time we play. One of the things that, you know, we've sat around and talked about while playing the Pathfinder Adventure card game, you you get certain perks, I guess you could say, for finishing the first scenario and then finishing the second one. And then you can get a card perk for basically finishing the fourth scenario. But when they have five, you don't really get anything for finishing that fifth one other than you, you finished all five of the you know, scenarios or five of adventures in that particular scenario set. And a lot of times it could just be a loot card that most of the time, it seems most of the loot cards that we've been experiencing in the rise of the rune Lord set, just, we really haven't been using too much. So we sat around talking afterwards and a couple of people who hadn't finished that, you know, four E scenario, they were just like, you know, we're, we're really not interested in the loot card. Going through that whole adventure again just seems like it would be an effort in futility at this point in time. So, like I said, I think we may just be moving on to the fifth adventure set um, next time when we start playing. I know there are a couple people who are still looking to get some of the earlier and older scenarios in as they actually had just started with us um, a couple of adventures ago or a couple of weeks ago, I guess I should say. So they missed a lot of the first and second um, and even some of the third uh, scenario sets. So one of the tables was actually going back and playing through some of those older ones, just trying to round out the deck a little bit better and just trying to see what type of upgrades they can get for him. But other than that, 
still enjoying this one. And on Thursday, when I had gone down to my game store, uh, Eric and I actually tried to get in a little Arkham Horror living card game. And the only reason I'm bringing this up now is because the games are, I guess you could say, kind of similar. Um, when you're playing through the Arkham Horror card game, each player is going to, you know, kind of construct a particular deck that they're going to utilize in the game. Each character will have different cards in their deck that will comprise that deck. So there's a lot there are there are some similarities between the gameplay between the Arkham Horror Living Card game as well as the Pathfinder Adventure card game. So now in Arkham Horror there are no dice being utilized. You have a bag of chips or tokens that you're filling up at the beginning of the game and whenever you're trying to do a skill check instead of rolling a die, you're actually drawing a chip from the bag and then either adding or subtracting that amount from your particular skill to see if you've actually passed the check. Or you could pull one of the other tokens in the bag that will allow you to look up on a card to see what the result is. Or you could draw an instant fail token from the bag, which basically just means that particular check that you just tried to accomplish is just instantly failed. So I'm noticing there are some similarities. You know, it has locations that you're visiting. Uh, one of the difference, I guess, in the games is where it, the Arkham Horror Living Card game is a little more similar to the actual Lord of the Rings living card game since, you know, Fantasy Flight made both of those games. In the Pathfinder Adventure card game, you normally just have a scenario with different locations that you're just trying to close and mainly defeat a villain. When you're doing the Arkham Horror living card game, you have a couple of different decks that are going to be worked through during the game. You're going to be working through one deck while the monsters are going to be working through another deck based on the number of turns that you're actually taking. So in a way, this is kind of like a, a timed play, like we have the Blessings deck in the Pathfinder Adventure card game. So we're still working our way through learning a lot about the Arkham Horror Living Card game. I will say we did not finish one of the scenarios. We got through part of one. We played a couple of turns. I did not have the decks pre-built or any of the locations put together or, you know, the scenarios put together. So that actually took quite a bit of time to do when we sat down to do that on Thursday. I was just having to look up quite a few rules since I'm quite newer to the living card game um, realm, I guess you could say. I have played the Lord of the Rings living card game once only, and I was I had someone there that really knew the game quite well, who kind of like led me through it. So trying to do the Arkham Horror game on our own this first time, definitely going to need to read, read through that rule book one more time, at least if not two more times, and then maybe spend a little bit more time maybe watching a video or so just to get myself up to speed, because I was just having to look up to see what some of the different verbiage means and what some of the different word keywords mean um, for the Arkham Horror game. And I mean, I've been playing the Pathfinder Adventure card game now for probably going on three plus years. And there are still things we know we go out to Paizo's website and look up because when you're dealing with this type of card game where the cards can actually completely change the way the rules of the game are played, it's what you may deem as how a card is being played and what the actual designer of the game is wanting that card to actually be played at could possibly be two different things. So, I mean, there's a lot of times we're sitting there with the Pathfinder Adventure card game and we still look up certain cards here and there because the verbiage may be just off a little bit or it's changed from one printing to another. So we need to make sure that we have the most up-to-date information on the particular cards that, that we're playing with. So, and I have a feeling that uh, the Arkham Horror Living Card Game is going to be similar to that, but so far from what I've played of it, I, I do like it. I was able to pick up one of the nice larger four-player mats. My friend in the local game store had actually just gotten those in stock, so I grabbed one of those, and I will say that that mat is quite gorgeous. 
and I had been looking forward to that for quite a bit, so hopefully I'll have a little bit more to say about the Arkham Horror Living Card Game in some upcoming podcasts once we get through a couple of the different scenarios and adventures, and I become a little bit more familiar with the game, and I'll probably try to throw some more conversation in on that one in particular. And then this past week down at my local game store, we also got in a nice little friendly game of the Great Western Trail. So I've spent some time with the Great Western Trail now. I've played it with two players. I've played it with four players. It seems like the game does scale quite well. So let's talk about a little bit with what you're doing in the Great Western Trail here. The Great Western Trail is a, I guess you could say, a sort of a deck builder with a rondelle component to it. You're also having tile placement, I believe, like I mentioned last week. And you're going for the most victory points, as always with most games. But I will say the deck building component in this one isn't necessarily the main focus point of the game. Deck building is something you do need to do because as you're playing through the game, you definitely need to be able to visit the market to purchase cows to get some of the larger um, cows into your deck, which will then let you score more points when you get up to Kansas City. But I really think the whole board game itself is the is the thing to focus on with this game because I can easily see that this game has a lot of replayability, mainly because each game you play, people are going to be placing different tiles down on the board at different locations, which is going to make your movement throughout the board pretty much change with each game. One of the things I noticed this past time when we were playing, especially with having four players and more tiles ending up on the board a lot more quickly than when you would with a two-player game, I noticed that when people were starting to put tiles down that would have one of the hands on there, and what the hand symbol means is you need to as you're passing over that tile, you need to immediately pay that person the amount of money, depending on how many players are in the game and what color hand it is, either green or black. These the, the hazard tiles also have a hand on there. And when you're looking at the game board, most of the paths that you can take to either go across player tiles or to go across hazards, there's going to be a lot of different times where you can choose to go one of those paths or the other. And you need to look and think, the neat thing about the game is once you run out of money, if you're going over player tiles and you're required to pay, there's really no sort of penalty for not having any cash on hand for having to pay them. So if you if you pay one person, you're one you know, the first person that you know whose tile you pass over your last piece of gold, any other tiles that you're going to land on later on in your movement for that turn, you don't really have to worry about payment for. Or if you want to take go walk over the hazards and go that path instead, you can essentially pay the bank instead of playing another player, depending on how many hazard tiles are there. And that was something that I noticed that I was doing this past time. I was, in the four-player game, I noticed that I was trying to spend more time clearing off some of those hazard trails to get around going through where players have placed tiles so this way I didn't have to pay them and I could possibly also move a little faster to other parts of the board if those hazard tiles had been cleared off. So let's start off with a little bit of the gameplay because I really didn't go over too much gameplay last time when, when I had talked about this game because I kind of wanted to make sure I got the four-player game under my belt and make sure that this game does scale good. And I will say that the game does scale quite well. When you do play with four players, expect the game to last a little bit longer, which you can expect when you do add more people to the game. But I will say that all of us talked about the game at the end, 
And we all came to the same agreement that when we played the four player game, there was no time during the game where we actually felt that the game was dragging on a little too long, like we have with other four or five player games that we've recently played. So that's one of the great things about this game. It keeps you engaged with the game the whole time. And we never seem to just really want the game to end until it actually did come to the finish. So when it's your turn, what you're going to do is you're going to actually be able to do several kind of actions, I guess you could say, or several different phases during your turn. The first one is going to be to move your worker, your cattleman around the board. And normally when you're playing with um, a two-player game, I think you start off with three movement. And I think when you go up to four players, I think you get to do four movement, I think it was. You can move up to that amount and you don't have to move the full amount, but you do have to move at least one space. So you're going to look at the board. You're going to see which path you want to take if you come to a fork in the road. And then you're going to need to see which path is going to be most, which is going to be the best path for you to take based on where you're trying to get in the board. After that, depending on the tile that you land on, you're going to do one of several actions. If a tile that you land on is your own tile, you can do the actions immediately that are on that tile, or you can possibly just take one auxiliary action. If you land on pretty much any other sort of tile on the board, let's say a let's say an opponent's tile, one of the hazard tiles or a TP tile, the only thing you're going to be able to do is take the, the auxiliary action. There are also neutral tiles on the board, and just like with your own tiles, you will be able to take those actions as well. So the only place you really don't get to do anything is if you land on the hazards or somebody else else's color tile. And I'm not going to go into too much to, into all the different types of actions that you can do because there are a ton of different actions. And the game is the game is pretty well designed in that the iconography that is put into the game, once you actually get a feel for and understand what the iconography is meaning, it's really easy to just look at a tile and say, okay, here's what I get to do. Here's what, I, here's what I'm going to do. And then just move on from there. After that, the third part of your phase is of your turn is going to be redrawing your hand up to your hand limit size, which in a two-player game, you start off with a hand limit size of four. In essence, on your turn, the different phases of your turn are going to be movement, taking an action and then drawing your hand size back up to four. I mean, it, there really isn't too much more. I mean, that's at a very high level what you're doing with the game, but there really isn't too much more to it. And while that does sound rather simplistic, like I said, deciding how much to move on your turn is a good thing, is, is one of the things that you need to decide. If there's a tile that you're, you know, if the next tile in your board is uh, has actions on there that you want to take, you need to figure out, do I want to get to Kansas City faster by moving my full amount of movement, or do I want to stop on a majority of the tiles I'm passing, especially based on their actions, if they are actions that you can do. So that's where a lot of the strategy for this game is going to come into play. It's definitely not, I don't want to say it's a hard game, but it's a game that is going to keep you thinking throughout the game. And like I said, I noticed when we played the four-player game that as the bill as the board filled up with more tiles really figuring out your movement and then unlocking some of the the uh, the extra abilities to move further along on the board in your turn was something that's extremely beneficial as well there's a few other things on the board that you're going to need to pay attention to 
one of the main parts of the game is going to be the deck building. When you land on one of the action tiles that has one of the cow heads on there, the steer heads on there, you're going to get to go to the market. Based on the number of cowboys you have in your tableau in front of you, you will get to possibly purchase cards or you can actually get place a couple of additional cards back into the market to possibly purchase. You will also be able to possibly move your train along the top of the board. And this is something that's also important as well. The train along the top of the board is something you're going to want to keep up with and you're going to need engineers to be able to move your train. One thing that my wife did when we were playing during our two-player game is she was able to get the jump out on me as far as moving her train down. And there's upgrades you can actually do at various locations on the train track. These upgrades will let you take a tile in front of you, which will give you a recurring type of bonus normally or some sort of endgame bonus. It also gives you additional victory points at the end of the game. So there are a lot of different paths to victory you can take and a lot of different ways you're going to be able to obtain victory points. I know when we played our four-player game, Eric was able to go with a very, very high engineer strategy where he basically filled his board up with engineers. He was moving his train along that track and taking a lot of those upgrade tiles that he was able to get and it was just a strategy that really worked for him. I don't think he had purchased hardly any cows during cows during the game, unlike myself, where I almost had, I think, 40 points in cows alone. But since that was what I had mainly concentrated on, I wasn't I my train I had moved up quite a bit, but considering I wasn't placing tokens tokens down on any of the points the places to get victory points, I think that really hurt me a lot. I also kind of got messed up in the game where I had to place two tokens in Kansas City. And while you do get six gold for placing a token on Kansas City, at the end of the game, you lose six victory points. And since I had done that, I lost 12 victory points, as well as losing a couple other victory points along that top train row where all the different cities are mainly because of where I had placed some of my tokens. And on the very last turn, I had a really crappy hand I guess I could say I think I had like three ones in my hand and I had to place that second piece that second token on Kansas City and that just kind of just shot my whole game down to hell because my score just was abysmal after that I mean besides that though I was able to to get a good hand of cows going and turning into Kansas into Kansas City when I would or yeah when I would reach there and that's what you're trying to do. The main part of the game is working your way from the lower right-hand part of the board, which is starting off in Texas and delivering the cattle up to Kansas City. Like I said, there's quite a bit going on in this game. It is a great game if you like tile placement games, if you like deck builders, if you like a little bit of rondel mechanic going, you know, mechanics going on in the board. This is a game that you probably definitely want to get to the table. Stronghold Games definitely has another great game on their hands here everybody that i that i've talked to that has played it down at my local game store has had nothing but good things to say about it i haven't heard anybody talk bad about anything or say really anything negative about the game great western trail definitely try to get this one to the table and it's a game i can guarantee that you will definitely enjoy after that one of the other games we played down at my local game store i had gone down there on thursday i was able to do a demo for a game that isn't out yet called Villages of Valeria. Villages of Valeria 
is a nice little card game that was on Kickstarter. And I will say that when I initially saw it on Kickstarter, I wasn't really too sure how the gameplay for it was going to be. I had watched a couple videos and I just kind of kind of just dismissed it at first, not really thinking much of it. If you're familiar with games like San Juan, where you have a a card game where you're going to be having a active player who does a leader action and then everyone else around the board will be able to take a follow-up action to what the leader did similar to that but it won't be as nice of an action or as beneficial of an action and it could possibly cost more resources that's where this that's the type of game that this is so in villages of valeria everybody's going to start off with three gold coins you're going to start off with a hand of six cards you have a castle in front of you and you're going to be able to place one of the cards from your hand underneath your castle to be able to let you create a resource by placing a gold on there. Your castle is going to give you a wild type of resource. So on your first turn, you are essentially going to be able to create two different types of resources to hopefully start playing other cards in your tableau down in front of you, which could then give you victory points as well as giving you the ability to take a possible instant type of action or be able to recruit villagers, or I guess I should say workers, from the worker row of of characters that are on there, as you have two different types of card rows that you can draw from. One type of row is going to be nothing but buildings. The other type of row is going to be all of the different villagers that you will be able to recruit during a recruit action. So like I said, when it the game's going to start out, the first player, or the active player, I guess we should say, is going to be able to pick from one of a few different types of actions. And those actions are a harvest action, where you can draw three cards into your hand one at a time. And one of the things to remember is whenever you draw a card from one of the rows, you make sure to refill that row before actually moving along. You can then, after the active player does their um, harvest phase, everybody else can follow that, but they only get to draw one card into their hand. Now, I was looking at the rules that are currently out in BoardGameGeek, and the rules do seem to be a little outdated as opposed to the rules that actually came with a box that my um, friendly local game store was sent. I don't believe in the rules that were on BoardGameGeek that I saw that it mentioned that there was no hand limit, but in the rules that we had read and that we were following that actually came with the game, there is a hand limit of eight size, eight, uh, you know, you have a hand limit size of eight. This only comes into effect at the end of your turn. So on other players' turns, you can actually enter your turn with nine, 10, or more possible cards based on the different actions that other players at the table have taken. But at the end of your turn, you need to make sure you have no more than eight cards in your hand at any one time. So some of the other actions that you can take besides the harvest action, the active player can do a develop action, which is discarding a card from their hand to add another card to your village as a resource. And you're basically going to flip the card upside down and put it under your um, castle. And you will then at a later turn be able to put a gold on there to be able to obtain the resource. Now a follower can actually do the same type of action, but they will need to discard two cards instead of one. Like I said, sometimes the follow actions are cost a little bit more, but if you really want to get a card into play or get more possible resources into play to be able to do things on your turn, you may want to discard those two cards to be able to do that. You can also do a build action where you're going to be able to build one of the cards from your hand and add it to your village, and then you can draw a card into your hand. The followers can do this, but they only do the build. They don't get to draw the card. 
One of the other things you can do on your turn is a recruit, where you can pay one gold to the bank and recruit an adventurer to your village. You need to make sure that the icons that you have on the buildings that are in your village will match up to the recruitment requirements that are actually on the adventurer's card. So if a adventurer has two holy symbols on there, you need to have a card that has two holy symbols on it or two separate cards that have holy symbols on there so you can actually recruit that adventurer into your tableau. Again, the follower can do the same type of action, but they will be paying two gold coins to do the advent to do the recruit type of action on their turn. Also, there's a tax action that can be taken, where you can the the active player will draw one coin from the one gold coin from the bank, and then draw a card. The followers on this action do pretty much nothing. And again, I think this is a little different because I'm actually going off of the instructions that are on BoardGameGeek, which I think are a little outdated, as I thought the way we played it was on the tax phase, the main person got a coin and draw a card, and I thought everybody else got to draw a card during that one. And I really wish I would have kept the game box from my local game store, but considering it was a game that was sent to them it was, and it's in their library, I didn't want to bring it home for the weekend for me to do the podcast with, so... But I'll have to verify some of those rules at a later time once I can take another look at the book. So, But those are the main type of actions that you can do. And you're going to go around um, the board. The end of the game is going to be signified based on how many buildings and adventurers a person has in their tableau in front of them. So we were playing a five-player game, and a five-player game ends when one person had a total of ten buildings or adventurers um, totaled together in front of them. After that, you're going to score victory points. And this game is actually a very good game. Everybody there that played it was asking when the game was going to be coming out. Everybody was very excited to see this game. I was a very big fan of Daily Magic Games' other game, the first game I think that they actually came out with called Valeria Card Kingdoms. And you'll actually notice that in playing Villages of Valeria that the art is very similar between the games. A lot of the iconography is the same between the two games. And if you really enjoyed Villages, or if you really enjoyed Valeria Card Kingdoms, you will definitely enjoy Villages of Valeria, as the mechanics are completely different. Uh, there are no dice like the first game, so it doesn't have the whole Machikoro feel to it. And like I had said before, when I was reviewing Valeria Card Kingdoms, Valeria Card Kingdoms has definitely replaced Machikoro for us in our house. And Villages of Valeria is a great game with a really great, interesting mechanic. Um, I played San Juan before, and I thought it was an okay game, but I really like how they've kind of incorporated that whole type of, you know, leader and then follower type of action into the game to really give you a completely different style um, and feel for the game, along with using the same type of icons and iconography, like I said, from Valeria Card Kingdom. So Villages of Valeria is definitely something to keep an eye out for. If you've missed the Kickstarter, definitely look for it. I think it's going to be hitting most local game stores retail, I believe sometime in January. So that is one to definitely keep an eye out for. And I have a feeling that this will be another great seller for Daily Magic Games. Other than that, we have one other small little game to talk about, and that's a game called Deep Sea Adventure that we played after we attempted to play the Arkham Horror Living Card game on Thursday because we kind of just wanted kind of like a no-brainer style game um, where we can pretty much just roll dice and not really have to think too much about that, and that is what Deep Sea Adventure really is. Deep Sea Adventure is a small box. It's a just smaller type of game 
You're going to have a submarine at the top of the board with a token on there, and there's going to be 25 different spots on there, I believe it is, that you're going to move the token across. You're going to have different colored tiles that have different numbers on them, kind of snaking down into kind of like the depths of the water, I guess you could say, and they get darker as you move further away from the sub. The tiles will have different shapes as well as numbers on them. The numbers will be like one, two, three, four, I think is what they are. As you're getting to the higher numbered tiles, there are going to be more victory points, but you're also going to be further along the way, you know, the path from the submarine. On your turn, what you're going to do is you're going to roll a couple dice. You're going to move your worker or your little submarine guy along the little pathway. And if you want, you can take the token you land on if it is actually a numbered token that has one of the numbered pips on there. Or you can basically just say path and continue moving along or pass and just continue moving along the path. What you're trying to do is you're trying to collect tokens in this game that are, you know, lower on the board, but it's a complete push your luck game because once you take a tile off of the board, when you roll the dice, your die roll is going to be subtracted one less for each tile that you have in front of you. And at the beginning of your turn, you're also going to have to move that little token that is up on the submarine one space for every token you have in front of you as well. So once you get three tokens, you're essentially using up kind of like three air from the submarine. And once 25, once you get to the number 25 on the sub, if you haven't made it back to the submarine yet, all of your tiles are going to get placed in a little pile of three tokens per pile down at the end of the path to kind of make it like a little, a little treasure chest down there. But you start over another round and then try to just go again. And the game is played through three rounds. In the first game that we played, I don't think either of us finished and or got back to the sub on any of our three um, three turns that, you know, we kind of went through the the play. On the second game, I think I made it back right at the end and I was able to score a few more points than my opponent had. But this was a nice little interesting push your luck game because it's really tricky as you're working your way back up the path, if you land on, when you take a token um, that has one of the numbered spots on there, you're going to put like a re, or like an X, like a, X, a circular X token on there. As you're coming, working your way back up the path, if you land on one of those circular Xs, you can actually replace one of the tokens from, you know, that you have kind of like an inner tableau in front of you in your hand, I guess you could say. So this way you're not using up as much air per turn and you're also not having so many numbers subtracted from your die roll per turn. The dice that you're going to use are six-sided dice, but they go from just one to three. So the highest roll you're ever going to get on a particular turn is going to be six. So if you need to move two or three spaces and you have three tiles in front of you, you're going to need to roll five or six continually to keep your character moving along the path, which is where the whole push your luck component comes in. In the first couple of games, we were just trying to push our luck way too much and just, I guess you could say, kept drowning because we were just never making it back to the sub. So this was a really cool little game. Um, I had a really good time with it. It was just a nice little, you know, game where you really didn't have to think about much. You were just rolling dice, moving, and just trying to see how far along you can push your luck to see if you can actually come back with some points that could be scored then at the end of the game. That's called Deep Sea Adventure. If you're looking for a neat little kind of um, tile, tile game that has a nice dice push your luck component to it, 
definitely check that one out. It was really interesting. Other than that, that's it for what I played for this week. A couple of games that I've been looking at lately on Board Game Geek and have been following some videos on. I was doing some um, looking up at the game The Colonists. I watched Rado's run through of this game. This one looks kind of interesting. It does look to be, I don't want to say a little bit on the heavier side, but I guess you could. It does seem like it has quite a bit to it. Um, the game can also be quite lengthy, which sounds kind of interesting because I kind of do just like lengthy games sometimes where you can just kind of spend the afternoon just playing a game. And if you just get one game in, sometimes I'm completely fine with that. Another thing I was reading about on Board Game Geek, I noticed that Restoration Games stated that they were going to be doing a remake of the game from uh, the late 80s, I think it was, called Stop Thief. This is a game that I actually still have in my collection back from when I was a teenager. Uh, yeah, that kind of does show my age. So my Stop Thief game actually has the electronic component to it, whereas now they will be using an app that will be probably usable on any phone, tablet, or computer to be able to do all the different actions of the thief that is going around trying to um, just make as many different or steal as much as they can before he is caught. It's a really interesting take on the old, I guess you could say, clue game. It was definitely something that was updated um, back in the late 70s there, and I'm really interested to see how they're going to incorporate the app with that game and really see how that one plays. And it kind of makes me want to get my game back out and maybe try to revisit this one as I probably haven't played this one in probably over 20 plus years now. And it was always something that we played quite a bit um, when I was growing up years and years ago. So Stop Thief and the Colonist are the two games that I've been kind of paying attention to this past week. So check those out on Board Game Geek if you are interested in them. But other than that, that's going to be it for this podcast. Thanks for joining me, everybody. As always, send me some emails. Let me know what you're playing now. You can send the emails to what I'm playing now at gmail.com. You can also join me in some conversations over on Board Game Geek. We have our guild there. 2440 is our guild number. On Twitter, we are at What I'm Playing Now. Don't forget to drop the G, like I always say. On Facebook, just do a search for What I'm Playing Now. Our Google Plus page is plus.google.com slash the plus sign. What I'm Playing Now podcast. And then, as always, our Twitch channel is twitch.tv slash what I'm playing now. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining me for another week of gaming here at What I'm Playing Now. I will be back next week with some more games played and, of course, a few other things that I'm looking forward to playing. Until then, you know what to do. Go out there, play some games, and then let me know what you're playing now. Thanks a lot for joining me, everybody. Have a great week. Bye-bye.